Trio, a novel, written by William Boyd. The origins of Trio actually go back quite a long way. It all started when I came across a quote by Anton Chekhov that I used as an epigraph for a short story. And Chekhov says, paraphrase slightly, that people live their real, most interesting lives under cover of secrecy. And this idea intrigued me, the idea that people live secret lives, that there is a public life and then there is a secret hidden life. And when you think about it, it's actually not that surprising because people are opaque, people are mysterious. Even the people closest to you, your loved ones, are fundamentally unknowable. You can't tell what somebody is thinking. They may tell you what you're thinking, but they may be misleading you or lying to you. So this idea that people are secret, that there's somehow there's an inner core that is preserved and nurtured and curated um, and is not available to the rest of the world is the original idea behind the novel I wrote, Trio. I uh, literally thought of writing about it as a form of a short story, an almost experimental short story. I had this idea that I was going to write three short stories about three distinct people who all were keeping their secret lives hidden. And I had this conception that um, I would write these short stories and I would, they would be discreetly published and put in a little slipcase and the stories would be colour-coded and that people could select, say, the green story, then the blue story, then the red story and as they read these stories they would almost construct their own narrative. It's not a bad idea but it's a bit of a gimmick um, and I wasn't sure how successful it would be. It might have pleased me but it might have irritated readers enormously. So I decided actually to park this idea but it nagged away at me, this notion of three people, three secret lives somehow intermingled and eventually I saw that actually it would work very well as a novel. I decided to make one of the women uh, a novelist, a woman novelist, who is suffering a 10-year writer's block. Uh, one of the other woman was a young American actress. By then I had come up with this idea of setting the whole thing in a movie context and that the man would then become the uh, producer of this film. Uh, I had to invent names for them all. I called the woman novelist Elfrida Wing. I called the young American actress Annie Wicklund. And I called the producer figure Talbot Kidd. Elvira is about 40. Talbot is in his 60s. And Annie is in her 20s. So the whole thing began slowly to take shape. I next had to decide um, when was this mo movie, when was this novel going to take place. 
And I was very interested in the 1960s. I'd been reading something, I'd been talking to French journalist friends of mine about the Événement de Mai, the, the great riots that ripped apart the centre of Paris in May 1968. And I th suddenly thought, well, maybe 1968 would be a go good year. But in fact, I couldn't remember very much about 1968. Even though I was 16 years old, the, for me, the, the great event of that year was sitting my O-levels and, and getting the results. Um, I, was at, I was actually tempted to set it in 1969, which is a year I remember far more vividly, the year of the moon landings, of course. It was the first time I spent any time in London, and I actually hitchhiked from Inverness in Scotland all the way to the Mediterranean, to Juin-les-Pins. So for me, the summer of 1969 was incredibly vivid, um, but problem. I had already set a novel in 1969. It was my James Bond continuation novel, Solo, uh, and that was set firmly in 1969, so that ruled the year out. So I went back with some reluctance to look at 1968 again, but as I researched the year, I realised that in many ways it was actually much more suitable for my, uh, my purposes. Um, it was an extraordinary year in 20th century history, maybe in modern history even. It was one of those years, a kind of tipping point, a watershed, uh, like 1848 or 1914 or 1933. Uh, 1968 was a year when the world seemed to be going to hell in the handcart, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, it started badly. The Vietnam War was raging. Uh, the North Vietnamese Army launched the Tet Offensive in January of 1968 and uh, very nearly overwhelmed the American forces and the South Vietnam forces. Uh, there were 500,000 American soldiers in Vietnam in 1968, and they almost capitulated to these series of attacks, even in the heart of Saigon, uh, launched by the uh, Viet Cong and the, and the NVA. So that was the background, and obviously that raged on through 1968, but also in America there was the assassination of Martin Luther King. And after that, the most appalling race riots and uh, acts of destruction that had been seen in American history, uh, a, a violent response to the assassination of, of Luther King. And then, nine weeks later, uh, Bobby Kennedy, the, the brother of JFK, was also assassinated as he was celebrating his win in California as the Democrat uh, nominee for the uh, presidential elections that were coming up. All in all, it was a traumatic year for Americans. There were riots on student campuses, Columbia University was occupied by the students and continuing the student theme 
the uh, the what happened in Paris uh, in in May and June of 1968 was almost a repeat of the French Revolution of uh, 1789. Uh, Paris was torn apart. There were pitched battles between. Uh, students and workers and the police, riot police, uh, and it was really a cataclysmic moment that brought, brought to an end the reign, if you like, of Charles de Gaulle and initiated a whole new period in, in French history, contemporary French history. Same can be said in, in, in Germany. The, if you ask a German about 1968, they'll say massive student upheaval, total student uh, uh, kind of occupation of the news, of German culture, of German political life. It's initiated this policy of coming to terms with the past, uh, the Nazi past of the German state, and the persistence of uh, Nazis, ex-Nazis, in the governing classes. So for Germans, 68 is a hugely significant year. It's true of Italy as well, student uprisings, Mexico. So all in all, <clears throat> the, the world looked in a very sorry condition. And in a funny sort of way, the uncertainties, the anxieties, the um, worry about the future, are sort of a forerunner of what we're feeling now in 2020 as the global pandemic um, takes grip and uh, rampages through the countries of the world. There's a very similar kind of fragility in the air. Anyway, that was um, the world in 1968. But of course, um, it wasn't quite like that in Great Britain. We were in the height of the so-called swinging 60s, uh, period of hedonism, fun, frivolity. Of course, there were serious things going on. Uh, we had our share of riots in Grosvenor Square. But the, the counterculture in Britain was very small and, you might say, intellectual and middle class most of the country was uh, getting on with its business and, and having fun. And so I saw Britain as a curious bubble uh, of uh, you know, self-regard and complacency in the midst of this world which was tearing itself apart. Uh, and I decided that this contrast was absolutely perfect. What I then thought was that what I would establish was that my three characters were connected directly or loosely with the making of a film that was very swinging 60s. And you could say that between, say, 1964 and 1970, there was a little boom in the British film industry. It probably started with Richard Lester's film of the Beatles, A Hard Day's Night. But there was suddenly a, a taste uh, and a, a flavour created for films that you would describe as zany or wacky, 
very contemporary, very much of the day, with a certain amount of racy sexuality, but that were fundamentally fun and silly and a bit surreal. And this um, atmosphere was often reflected in the titles of these films. Um, films that were released after 1964 often had very long titles, as if a long title would signal the fact that this was a zany, wacky, sexy, up-to-date movie that reflected the, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, our swing in London, swing in the 60s uh, attributes. Um, for example, there's a few random film titles. Um, 30 is a dangerous age, Cynthia. I'll never forget what's his name. The knack and how to get it. And my favourite, uh, perhaps the film with the stupidest title ever invented, the film directed by Anthony Newley, and starring Anthony Newley and his then wife Joan Collins was called Can Hieronymus Merkin Ever Forget Mercy Hump and Find True Happiness? Anyway, Newley's film, Hieronymus Merkin, uh, for brevity's sake, was in a way the apotheosis of these 60s movies. It actually had an X certificate because there was male and female nudity in it. Uh, and it in a way marked the end of this short-lived uh, sub-genre of British films. Uh, the films of the 70s became darker and uh, more serious and that kind of freewheeling, free-spirited uh, British movie really sort of ceased to exist. But it can be looked on as a, as a distinct period in film history and there were several dozen films that were all made uh, in the same spirit. Anyway, so I decided that my film, that my trio, would be occupying a film very like this. And I gave it a title, a distinctly silly title, of Emily Bracegirdle's Extremely Useful Ladder to, to the Moon. Uh, not as silly as Hieronymus Merkin, but Hieronymus Merkin was my model. And this film was uh, a wacky, zany, surreal movie about a famous American film star who falls in love with her cockney lad of a driver. So it's a love story and there's lots of rock music, lots of slightly surreal, self-indulgent uh, episodes and so on. So a classic film of that 60s period. Uh, the film star, uh, the American film star, was played by the young American actress Annie Wicklund. Uh, the film was directed by a man called Reggie Tipton, who's changed his name to Rodrigo Tipton because he thinks it sounds cooler. And his wife is the novelist figure Elfrida Wing. So Elfrida is loosely connected to the film. She's not actually uh, taking part in it. And Talbot Kidd, the 60-something-year-old, the World War II veteran, is the rather posh and distinguished producer figure. Anyway, so here is the context for my story. The final element I added 
was that I decided that they would be shooting this film in Brighton, not in London. And I chose Brighton because I have this vague obsession with East Sussex for some reason. Um, I know it can't I know it very well. I know lots of people who live there. I know Brighton quite well. I have two very close friends who live there. My cousin lives there. My goddaughter went to university there. So Brighton's a town I know, but not fantastically well. I don't know it as well as I know London, for example. But it's an interesting town, Brighton. It's always had this reputation as being slightly louche and slightly racy. And in the novel, one of the characters describes Brighton as the Las Vegas of England. Um, that as people, in the way that people in the Midwest go to Las Vegas to let their hair down and, and escape their rather boring lives, so people from London, for example, go down to Brighton to have a bit of fun. And so it has this, atti it has this um, reputation and I wanted to exploit that and it seemed the perfect place to set my silly 60s movie in. So there we had Brighton, uh, the film Emily Bracegirdle's Extremely Useful Ladder to the Moon and our three characters and we were ready to launch the narrative. And of course um, Great Britain was a kind of bubble and within that bubble was the bubble of the film set and if you've ever been on a film set they are curiously self-sufficient organisms uh, catering, sanitation, um, hospitality, uh, lodgings, everything is taken care of. There's a slightly um, pampered feel about being on a film set. So again, there's this echo of, of the frivolous world of 60s, late 60s Britain echoed in the frivolous, pampered world of a, of a film set. Um, anyway, so the film is underway. The, the time scale of the novel is roughly July and August of 1968. The film has been underway for three or four weeks when we join it, as it were, when the novel begins and we see, uh, we see it through to the end. There is a little kind of postscript which takes place in August uh, no, September 1968, but basically that's the time scale of the novel, it covers the summer, the high summer of 1968. Well, I won't spoil the novel for people who haven't read it, but suffice to say that these three characters, um, their lives touch upon each other, obviously Tolbert, the producer, is much more closely involved with Annie, the actress, but Annie doesn't know Tolbert that well. She's got a much closer relationship with her co-star, who's a 60s pop star called Troy Blaze. Again, very typical name. Think of Billy Fury, Adam Faith, etc., etc. Um, Elfrida hovers around the film. She meets Talbot, she she sees Annie. Um, her connection is through her husband who's the director who is um, 
let's say, not the best husband. But anyway, the three of them are all going about their business to the best of their ability. And all of them have secret lives. And their secret lives, slowly but surely, begin to take over their public lives, uh, trying not to give too much away. And also the the real world, if you if you like, the world outside of of mayhem and danger begins to intrude on the world of the film, and things slowly but surely begin to go wrong and begin to unravel. And the effect I was looking for here—it's true of all my novels, I think. I I am essentially a comic novelist, I think. Um, though I would qualify that by saying I'm a serious comic novelist in that even though the events I'm describing have a comedic aspect to them or an absurd aspect to them, that underneath the surface is uh, or are darker currents. The human condition in, inexorably comes to bear on my characters' lives. Uh, and I, I use as, I signal this by my epigraphs, uh, and I've always done this in novels. I think epigraphs are very important. They give the reader a clue as how to read the novel. And in this case, I have two epigraphs. One is from Chekhov, the familiar one about people leading, leading secret lives. And the other one is a quote from Albert Camus, again, a very 60s um, philosopher figure and Camus said that there is only basically one question in philosophy and that is the question of suicide and he says all other philosophical speculations spin off from this that if you think that life is worth living then suicide isn't an issue but if you think that life isn't worth living, then it comes to the forefront of your mind. And this is a question that two of our trio have to address, Elfrida and Annie. And this gives rise to the, the darker currents, the significances uh, that underpin the rather rackety, funny business of making this silly film. And I think I don't want to give away any more than that. Um, there is a, a real sense of closure and catharsis to the three narratives that we are involved with. Uh, and the question about is life worth living or isn't it is actually quite resolutely answered by all three, but all three of them in dramatically different ways. Mm -hmm.